0: Chapter Thirty One of It Happened in Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It Happened in Egypt by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Thirty One, The Mountain of the Golden Pyramid. There was not much room in our hearts for mountains or gold just then. Yet somehow, before we left the palace, Anthony and I had told Bridget and Monny the secret which had been the romance of our lives, until they came into it to paint dead gold with the living rose of love. Victorian women would have been grieved or angry with men who could leave them at such a time, but these two, instead of reproaching us, urged us on. Naturally they wanted to go with us. They said if there were danger they wished to share it and if there were to be a find, they wished to be among the first to see what no eyes had seen for two thousand years. But when Anthony explained that there wasn't time to get tents together and make a decent camp for ladies, even if we were sure not to tumble into trouble, they said no more. This was surprising in Monny, if not in Bridget. I supposed, however, that she was being on her best behavior, as a kind of thank-offering to Providence for its unexpected gift of legitimate happiness." Our secret was to be kept. Only the Sirdar knew, and gave Fenton leave of absence for a few days. The set did not suspect the existence of a mountain at Moreau more important than its neighbours. They did not even know what had become of Antoun effendi after he bade them farewell and good luck. From the first he had given it out that he must leave the party at khartoum. The object of returning to Mero was to meet Sir Marcus and I promised to be back in plenty of time to organize the return trip to Cairo. My departure, therefore, was all in the day's work, and the great sensation was Mrs. East's engagement. Even though for obvious reasons Monny's love affair was kept dark, Cleopatra could not resist parading hers, the minute her wire to Sir Marcus had been safely sent. I got an invitation for all the members of the set to a tennis-party in the palace gardens, at which the Sultan of Darfur and a bodyguard armed with battle-axes would be the chief attraction. Also I induced the landlord of our hotel to promise special illuminations, music, and an impromptu dance for the evening. This was to make sure that none of our friends should find time to see me off at the train. Anthony was to join me there, in Mufti, and might be recognized by sharp eyes on the lookout for mysteries." Once we got away, that danger would be past, unless Cleopatra told. But I was certain that she would not to any one ever again mention the name of Antoun. It was a full train that night, but no one in it who knew Antoun. Many people who had been visiting friends or staying at an hotel for weeks were saying good-bye. The narrow corridors of the sleeping-cars had African spears piled up on the floor against the wall, very long and inconvenient. Ladies struggled in with rainbow-colored baskets almost too big for their compartments. Seats were littered with snake skins like immense, decayed apple parings, fearsome, crescent-shaped knives, leopard rugs in embryo, and strange headgear in many varieties. Stuffed crocodiles fell down from the racks and got underfoot, men walked about with elephant tusks under their arms, dragomens solicited a last tip, a six-foot-seven dinka, black as ink and splendid as a Greek statue, brought flowers from the palace for some departing acquaintance of the Sirdar and his wife. Officers in evening dress dashed up through the sand on donkey-back to see the last of friends, their mess-jackets making vivid spots of color in the electric light. All the fragrant blossoms of Khartoum seemed to be sending farewell messages of perfume on the cool evening air. No more fantastic scene at a railway station could be imagined if the world and its doings is but a moving picture for the gods on olympus they must enjoy the film of a train departing from khartoum anthony did not join me until just as the train was crawling out of the station for we had asked bridget and monny not to see us off and they had been startlingly acquiescent we had a two-berthed compartment together and talked most of the night in low voices of the mountain of the legends concerning it and the papers of the dead Egyptologist Ferlini, which indirectly had brought Fenton into Monny Gilder's life, and given Bridget back to me. There was the out-of-doors breakfast-party, too, on the terrace at Shepherd's. Had it not been for this incident, Antoun, the green-turbaned Hadji, would never have been selected by Miss Gilder in words she might now like to forget. I'll have that, but had not a distressed artist called on me one morning in Rome, some months ago, with an old notebook to sell, I should not have come to Egypt for my sick leave, and none of us would have met. I had visited the artist's studio to please a friend, and bought a picture to please him, not myself. Therefore he regarded me as a charitable dilettante, likely to buy anything if properly approached. Bad luck had come to him. He wanted to try pastures new, and needed money at short notice, therefore he wished to dispose of a secret which might be the key to fortune. Why didn't he use the key himself, was the obvious question, which he answered by saying that a poor man would not be able to find the lock to fit it. The notebook he had to sell had been the property of a distinguished distant relative, long since dead, the Italian, Ferlini, who about 1834 ransacked the ruins of Meroe in the kingdom of Candace. Ferlini had given treasure in gold, scarabs, and jewels to Berlin, all of which he had discovered in a secret cache in the masonry of a pyramid, in the so-called pyramid-field of Moreau. But he had been blamed for unscientific work, and in some quarters it was not believed that he had found the hoard at Moreau. This jealousy and injustice had prevented Ferlini's obtaining a grant for further explorations he wished to make. He claimed to have proof that in a certain mountain not far from the Moreau pyramids, and much resembling them in shape, was hidden the tomb of a Candace who lived two hundred years earlier than the queen of that name mentioned in the New Testament, mistress of the eunuch baptized by St. Philip. In the notebook which had come down with other belongings of Ferlini the Egyptologist to Ferlini the artist was a copy of a certain demotic writing of a peculiar and little-known form. The original had existed, according to the dead ferlini's notes, on the wall of an antechapel in one of the most ruinous pyramids at Moreau, decorated in a peculiarly barbaric Ethiopian style. The wall-writing described the making of the mountain tomb, ordered by Candace in fear that her body might be disturbed, according to a prophecy which predicted the destruction of the kingdom if the jewels of the dead were found. Verlini, a student of the demotic writings which had superseded hieroglyphics, doubted not that he had translated the revelation aright, though he admitted supplying many missing words in accordance with his own deductions. He was in disfavor at the time he tried to organize an expedition in search of the Queen's hoard, and, though legends of the mountain confirmed the writings which Verlini was the first to translate, the Italian could induce no one to finance his scheme." The one person he succeeded in interesting had a relative, already excavating in Egypt, but eventually addressed on the subject this young man replied that the antichapel in question had fallen completely into ruin. It would be impossible, therefore, to find the wall-writing, if indeed it ever existed. This verdict had put an end to Ferlini's hopes, and nothing remained of them save the translated copy of the writing in his notebook, the missing words inserted, and the legends of the negroes who, generation after generation since forgotten times, had told the story of the mountain of the Golden Pyramid. Nobody, within the memory of man, had ever searched for the problematical tomb, and as tales of more or less the same character are common in Egypt, I did not place much faith in the enthusiastic jottings of Ferlini. However, my love of the unknown, the mysterious and romantic, made me feel that the possession of the notebook was worth the price asked, ask, two thousand lira. When I had brooded over it myself, I posted it to Fenton at Khartoum, and his opinion had brought me to Egypt. Thinking of the matter in this way, it seemed to me that we owed our love stories to the impecunious artist, who had probably spent his eighty pounds and forgotten me by this time. In a few hours, or a few days, we might owe him even more." Anthony, acquainted with meroe its pyramids and pyramidal mountains, since his first coming to the Sudan, had been able to plan out our campaign almost at an hour's notice. He knew where to wire for camels, to take us to our destination, eighteen miles from Kabushia, also for trained excavators, and he knew one who, if the white men were in ignorance, could tell us all the most hidden happenings of the desert for fifty miles around. This was the great character of the neighborhood among the blacks, the wise man of the Merodic Desert, who claimed to be over a hundred years old, had a tribe of sons and grandsons, and practically ruled the village of Bacarawea. For countless generations his forebears had lived under the shadow of the ruined pyramids. Family tradition made them the descendants of those Egyptian warriors who revolted in the time of King Sameticus, migrating from Elephantine Island to Ethiopia. They were well received by the sovereign, given lands in upper Nubia, and the title of Otolomi or Asmak, meaning those who stand on the left side of the king. Anthony's friend and instructor in the lore of legends rejoiced in the name of Asmak, which, he proudly said, had been bestowed on the eldest son in his family since time immemorial. Asmak the old and wise was to meet us at Kabushia Station, with camels, one for each, and one for Sir Marcus, in case he had arrived and wished to ride to the mountain of the Golden Pyramid. It was red-orange afternoon when our white train slowed down, to pause for a moment at Kabushia Station, and the first face we saw was that of Sir Marcus Antonius, a radiant face whose beaming smile was, I knew, not so much a welcome sign for us as a sign that he had received the telegram from Cleopatra. He hurried along the platform, to the steps of our sleeping-car, and Anthony, ready to swing himself down before the train stopped, pointed out Asmak not far off, a thin, old black man who must have once have been a stately giant, but bent forward now as if searching the earth for his own grave. He had got to his feet from a squatting position in the coal-stained, alluvial clay of this strange desert, and was gazing toward us, his few rags fluttering in the warm wind. Beside him stood a mere youth of fifty or so, and two or three young men, with several sulky camels. Sir Marcus began to shake hands almost before we were on the platform, and so did he engross himself in us and absorb our attention that none of us quite knew when the train went out. "'My dear boys,' he addressed us, nearly breaking our finger-bones, "'Lord, Fenton, you're even better looking as a true Britisher than a false Arab. But never mind that now.' Burrow, you're a Trump. I believe I owe everything to you. I mean, in the matter of Mrs. East. Clara. It was always my favorite name. Fenton knows. Thanks for the congratulations. Thanks to you both. You must be my best men. What? Can't have but one? Well, it must be Burrow, then, I suppose. Oh, about the mountain. Why, of course you're anxious. Don't think I have not been busy. I have. Got here by special train. Cost me a lot of money, but who cares? It's worth it. I want to hurry things up and get to Khartoum. What your blessed mountain is to you, that is a certain lady to me. What have you found out?' I managed at last to cut short his rhapsodies. "'Why, not much,' I'm bound to confess. But I've only had a few hours. Some one, heaven knows who, came here, it seems, with Arabs he's engaged heaven knows where, and pretended to be my agent, empowered by me to work at the mountain of the Golden Pyramid, where it was well known I'd got the right to excavate. Well, the chap was armed with credentials, and had a contract signed by me, so the authorities thought that was all right, of course, and let him go on. This was more than a month ago. He pitched his camp out by the mountain, and nobody disturbed him. Fact is, from what I hear, I don't believe the excavating men from Liverpool School of Archaeology, or whatever you call it, thought much of his chances of success. A case of looking for Captain Kidd's treasure... He and his men were excavating round the mountain, and he'd engaged some more fellows from the neighborhood to make the work go faster. But a few days ago, not yet a week, he discharged the lot, paid them up, and sent them off, saying he'd abandoned hope of finding any entrance to an alleged tomb. The Arabs departed by train, but the fellows from hereabouts gossiped a bit, it seems, and the story was started that they'd been got rid of because the boss had hit on something, and wanted to be left to himself. "'You haven't yet told us the name of the man,' Anthony reminded him. "'By Jove, no more I haven't. "'I'm so excited about everything. "'You won't know it, but Bora will. "'Colonel Corcoran.' "'Anthony gave me a look. "'I do know the name,' he said. "'It's the man of my dream. "'The man of your dream? "'Corcoran, a dream? "'A dream which has kept repeating itself till I grew superstitious about it. "'A red-faced man with a purplish sort of moustache "'I saw coming between you and us,' or looking at me out of a dark recess something like a deep doorway borrow said when i told him i was describing your man corcoran whose place he took on your yacht candace well i'm hanged if that's not the rummiest go i only hope he's not in that recess or deep doorway now if it leads into your mountain you remember borrow my telling you he'd been alone for a while in the sitting-room i use as an office at the samiramis hotel and had had a good chance, if he wanted, to browse among my papers. Well, I didn't mention this to you at the time, but an unsigned contract with you for your services, in return for all my rights in the mountain of the Golden Pyramid, was lying on the desk. As for the contract he's showing here, it could have only been for the trip, but it showed him to be my agent right enough. And there were two confidential letters on my desk, one from a man I'd written to, an Egyptological chap saying, in his opinion, there might be a tomb in the mountain. The other, an answer, not finished, telling him I meant to run the risk, and had secured the rights. You know how queer I thought it, Corcoran should throw up his job, which was paying him pretty well. But it wasn't my business, and I was jolly glad to be rid of him as it happened. Well, here we have the mystery explained." "'Not quite yet, I wish we had,' I said, thinking of the sly old poacher on our preserves, who had perhaps by this time skimmed the cream off the secret. It was easy to guess why he had sent away his workers, if indeed he had imagined himself on the eve of a discovery. Rights to Dick are given on the understanding that the Egyptian government shall have half of everything found, worth the taking.' Corcoran's scheme to be alone must mean that he intended annexing what treasure he could carry off, and then getting out of the bad business. Already six days had passed since the Arabs and the Nubians had left him alone in his camp, and, though it was lucky that we had learned what was going on, it might be too late to profit by the information. Even if we caught Corcoran red-handed, he might have hidden his spoil where none but he, or some messenger, could ever find it. "'You'll go with us out to the mountain, Sir Marcus?' I went on. "'We'll be ready to start,' but Sir Marcus had suddenly become deaf. He had turned as if to gaze after the long-ago departed train. Instead of answering me, he was stalking off toward a group of people at the far end of the platform, three ladies and two men in khaki. For a second I felt an impulse of indignation. Cheek of him to march away like that, not caring much that we had been robbed, largely through his carelessness and by one of his own men.' But the indignation turned to surprise, sheer incredulous amazement. I glanced at Anthony to learn whether he had seen, but he was beckoning the old wise man of the desert. Fenton, said I, it seems we weren't the only passengers to get off here. There are three people we know, talking to two we don't. Anthony looked. Great Scott, said he, and in another instant we were following Sir Marcus hastily along the platform to greet or scold we weren't sure which it ought to be-the big-hatted green-veiled khaki-dressed but easily recognized figures of bridget o'brien monny gilder and mrs east we couldn't help it monny cried in self-defense to anthony before he had time to reach the group we knew you wouldn't let us come so we came because we had to be in this with you even biddy wanted to and she's so wise as for aunt clara i believe she'd have started off without us if we hadn't been wild for the journey So you see how it was. We did see, and we couldn't help rejoicing in their pluck, as well as in the sight of them, though it was all against our common sense. We've ordered our own camels and a tent and things to eat and drink, so we shan't be any bother to you,' Monty went on, as Anthony rather gravely shook hands, his eager brows lifted, his eyes smiling in spite of himself. "'We couldn't have done it if it hadn't been for Slatin Pasha.' We first went and confided everything to him, because we knew he loved adventures and would be sure to sympathize. These gentlemen from the camp are his friends, and they've organized our little expedition at his request. More than one person can use the telegraph, you know. And, oh, won't it be lovely going with you out into the desert? It was not yet evening when we set forth, but it was the birth of another day when we arrived within sight of Corcoran's camp the tents glimmered pale in the light which comes up out of the desert before dawn, as light rises from the sea, and so deep was the stillness that it might have been a ghost camp. There was not even the howling of a dog, and this silence was more eerie than the silence of sleep in a lonely place, because of the tale a grandson of Asmet's had brought to the village. He was one of the Nubian men Corcoran had engaged to help his Arab workmen from the north and when the whole gang had been discharged, he, suspecting that some secret thing was afoot, hid in the desert scrub that he might return by night to spy. He had wished his brothers to stay with him, but they, fearing the jinns who haunt the mountain and have power at night, refused, and begged him to come away, lest he be struck by a terrible death. The legend was that Queen Candace, the queen who ordered the making of the tomb, had been a witch. When she died, by her magic arts learned from the lost book of Thoth, she had turned all those aware of the tomb's existence into jins to guard the secret dwelling of her soul. Even the great men of the court, who, by her wish, hid in the mountain her body and jewels and treasure, became jins the moment they had closed and concealed the entrance to the tomb. They could never impart the secret to mortals, and because of the knowledge which burned within their hearts, and the anguish of being parted forever from those they loved, the tortured spirits in prison grew malevolent. While the sun, still worshipped by them as Ra, was above the horizon, they had no power over men. But the moment that Ra died his red death, the Jinns could destroy those who ventured within such a distance of the mountain as its shadow might reach and if any man ventured nearer in the darkness of night, he heard the wailing of the spirits. Camp had been pitched beyond the shadow's farthest reach, but the night after the workmen were discharged, Azmak's one brave grandson had been led by curiosity to approach the haunted mountain. When he had crept within the trench most lately dug, he had heard the wicked voice of the jinns raging and quarrelling together. There had been a threatening cry when they knew how a man had defied their power and the Nubian had escaped a fate too horrible to put into words, only by running, running until his breath gave out and the sun rose. The story gave the silent desert power even over European minds, as we came where the small camp glimmered, just outside the shadow's wicked circle. Not one of Asmak's men would go with us to the tent, which was evidently that of the leader he might be lying there dead, struck by the djinns, they said, and all those who looked upon the body would be accursed. The three women would not have gone to Corcoran's tent, even had we allowed them to do so, and Sir Marcus, already a slave, though a willing one, stayed with his adored lady and her friends, inside the ring which the Nubians proceeded to make with the camels. Carrying a lighted lantern, Anthony and I walked alone to the tent. The flap was down, but not fastened, and the canvas moved slightly as if trembling fingers tried to hold it taut. "'Colonel Corcoran!' I called out sharply, but there was no answer. End of chapter 31